freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Hello, my culminating friends. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Our guest is Ashley Baker. Ashley Baker has sort of the, the job that I probably would think that I should have if I weren't having this job. She's the director of public policy for the Committee for Justice. I've thrown up here uh, your Committee for Justice page, Ashley. Look at all the stuff. Look at all the stuff. Supreme Court, technology, regulatory policy, judicial nominations, intersection of the court's regulation and technology. Gosh, I mean, if anyone uh, follows uh, anything I've had to say or write in the last uh, couple of decades, actually, um, that's, you know, this basically, it, it probably would be more appropriate to say that Ashley should be hosting this podcast, but she's too busy. She's too busy. She's doing all the things. Uh, I hope you haven't been too busy to, to I, be, I hope you've been too busy to get, to get COVID. Everyone I talked to is getting COVID again or getting it for the first time. You're right. You're good. I had it last month for the had, second time, not last month yeah. for the second time, man. It's like, I can't get away from you people. Well, I guess I can't because, you know, I'm wearing, a I'm wearing a mask around my microphone. We know that that's all really all you need to do. All right. Um, Ashley, get sick. so tell, tell me about the Committee for Justice. I mean, it's a pretty generic name. It's amazing to me that you were able to, to grab it or, I, or your predecessors were. What, what, is the, what is the Committee for Justice focus on? Hey, well, first, thanks for um, having me here, Ron. Um, My pleasure. So, since we start, we were started in 2002, so they were able to um, grab the name then. Um, now there's a committee for justice for everything. Uh, people often ask me, is there a committee against justice? And I say, well, that's the Department of Justice. Um, so there's, <laughs> there's also that. Um, and enough. what we do is we work on a lot of issues related to the Supreme Court. Uh, we originally were starting to work on judicial nominations during the time of the obstruction of President Bush's um, federal court nominees in 2002 um, and kind of grew from there to cover a lot of issues of constitutional law um, that are particularly relevant to conservatives and that includes like the administrative state particularly. Um, I started I started my job at CFJ, um, which you're welcome to have for a while, by the way, if you really want it, um, we can switch for a while. Um, I started it in January 2017, um, so I've been there since then and um, I work on an array of issues, um, including like nominations, Supreme Court, um, the administrative state, um, antitrust, and uh, those are all kind of pretty relevant right now. So it's like everything, you know, colliding at once. Well, you know, you say it's pretty relevant right now. So I'm going to actually go to this before I ask you the next question, which is, you seem to, I see from your signature block that of all the things you're doing and all the thing, places you're doing them, that you're also involved with the Alliance on Antitrust. Um, and, and, and you're actually... This is an organization which is a bunch of organizations. It's a project of mine that's part of the Committee for Justice. It's not a separate organization. Understood. 
Okay, so uh, that means you don't have it. You don't have another separate phone number or desk. I know. Um, but you you have a, so you know you you say all things that are relevant, but it seems that the antitrust division doesn't think it's relevant to anything. When I was in law school back during the Stone Age, I, I, took a, I took antitrust. I took advanced antitrust. I was an economics major, so those things interested me a lot. And then there was no antitrust. I, I, there, there's, there has been so little antitrust enforcement from the federal government for the last generation that you'd think that there had actually been a statutory change of some kind, but there hasn't been, has there? No, there, there hasn't been. And I, um, Mr. Being no action in the sense of it not being in the media, um, being boring, that was, that was more fun. Um, the Trump administration, by the way, um, there was more antitrust enforcement in the Trump administration at the FTC than um, the Biden administration, um, ironically. Uh, you know, they're talking a lot of hard talk about it right now, but really they're just knock, knocking down guardrails and trying to, you know, pass rules and regulations um, in the future that are going to be pretty, um, pretty broad. Um, so, but yet they haven't really filed any successful, successful claims. Um, I, I think that's kind of a Kind of a problem. It's not to say that there's there's been nothing. Um, sometimes they've brought the right, wrong suits, but yeah, you're right that you know we could do a better job overall in that area and focusing more on enforcement and less on things such as um, Lena Khan's um, pet projects regarding um, pretty much everything else would be um, preferable there. So, what's an example of the kind of pet projects that you're referring to? Oh gosh, a lot of them, starting out, a lot of them are procedural. So the FTC didn't have a um, majority for quite a while um, here recently. Um, they just regained that. But um, this time, particularly this time last year, is particularly busy. And a, a lot Wait, of explain to listeners, explain to listeners what it means when you say that the, that the, FTC, the FTC didn't have a majority. Uh, there was one um, vacancy for commissioner. There is a 2-2 commission. So you need 3-2 to pass a lot of the um, things that are more partisan more or less, because um, it's a bipartisan commission. Um, we have two Republican commissioners sitting on the commission right now. Now we have three Democrats. One of them was recently confirmed. Um, but over last, the course of last summer, for example, um, the, there were a lot of procedural changes um, that long story short would make things a lot easier to engage in unfair methods of competition rulemaking, which is a pretty- Oh, rulemaking, not easier, to, yeah. not easier to engage in unfair competition. That would be bad. Yeah, um, they've certainly started moving in that um, general direction. The direction of, of, of making oh, rulemaking, rulemaking yes. easier to do. And so that's, that's sort of a bipartisan effort. That's not a bipartisan effort, I would say. No, no? That, those are all those were all three two votes um, last all... summer. The, the procedural ones that I was referring to, but you know, historically, the FTC and I, if you were if you um, antitrust, you would recall this probably even at, at the time. Then um, they've been kind of knocked into place by Congress a couple of times by getting out of hand and regulating things like sugar and breakfast cereals and um, making a lot of um, rules that they don't have the statutory authority to do so. Um, and for a while, um, you know, they're really kind of restrained themselves whenever you know every couple of decades congress says no you can't do that according to the statute or the supreme court says that um and then they you know bring in a bit and then now um you know we see that re-expect expansion back to the 70s more or less so what is uh, the conservative point of view the post you know to, to some extent conservatives we conservatives and i don't here you don't get blamed because you're young enough 
we conservatives got us here by the promotion of the law and economics movement in the 80s uh the the supreme court and it stop me if at any point you think i'm mis misstating what for me is a recollection but for you as a professional <laughs> stuff you really have to know but we had this tremendous law and economics movement that came out of chicago but primarily and we had a very receptive supreme court reagan appointees in particular who were open to this idea that what had traditionally been considered to be anti-competitive practices should be considered in terms of their overall economic efficiency and not only economic efficiency and benefit to the consumer as measured by economic by microeconomic metrics were, were think, factors that had not probably been considered sufficiently in the heyday of antitrust enforcement, 50s, 60s, early 70s, should be considered more in the, uh, you know, going forward, as a result of which very little antitrust enforcement started happening during Republican administrations. So I, I'd make some modifications to that um, historical summary, which is um, essentially, so let's so start a bit like further back in like, let's say the 1960s. Um, you know, the text of the Sherman Act is really vague. So over the years, it was, you know, how what is an unfair, you know, restraint and competition, everything is a contract and restraint of trade. That's what contracts are. Um, so how do we define this? How do courts interpret this? Because Congress was, you know, very vague and it kind of, it, it developed in a way almost that common law does. Um, throughout the years, throughout judicial opinions, but it was kind of, there was no guardrails, it was kind of, um, it was in, in the 60s, there's this, Justice Potter Stewart said, it's um, the only thing, um, the only sort of consistency in antitrust law is the government always wins, which I think is a pretty good way of summing it up. Um, and then what the Chicago School did primarily though, um, is it put some sort of, it gave it some sort of guardrail, some sort of purpose. And um, you, you said um, like price effects, or I, I don't, recall exactly the term you used, um, but the consumer welfare standard is more than just price. Um, it's more about the competitive process rather than, um, and it's not about competitors either. And that's, you know, a key distinction. Um, you don't protect competitors because, I mean, that's against the nature of competition, right? Uh, which right. Is and every, every single, every single defendant's antitrust brief in the history of mankind has ever, has always said that the purpose of the antitrust laws is not to protect competitors, but to protect competition. I mean, that's, you know, I don't know, I, I don't know why people and we do, we don't not, but we, we always feel obligated to include that line in there and we do. <laughs> right. Well, it's a big technical distinction too. Um, what's, it's what makes us different from the EU and Canada. Um, so. Explain, explain that because uh, I, I, people who follow this stuff in the news, which is probably not a ton of people, will notice that, I don't really notice hardly anything about Canada until fairly recently, but in the EU, certainly they're much less shy about being aggressive on antitrust, including with respect to a lot of companies that are basically untouchable in the United States, like Facebook. Well, I mean, one thing you'll notice about those companies and their uh, method of enforcement is they're enforcing it against U.S. companies. Um, and you, know, you have a long history of, you know, the European Union failing to innovate. And I, I would say that's 
because of a variety of factors, but overall, a you know, big part of that is because of their regulatory system um, and that deterring venture capital um, back to the United States. So part of, you know, why they regulate um, companies the way they do is also a protectionist move on their on their own. Um, but, you know, if, if you look at privacy law and GDPR um, and all of those areas, you see, you know, a much more um, restrictive environment more generally. Um, than you do in the U.S. And now, like, some people in the U.S. are kind of getting those ideas that they have in the EU, and those ideas have not served them very well in the European Union. There's a reason why there are few tech companies in Europe. You think they have not served them well? No, I don't think so. And if you, there's data to back that up, too, um, not specifically as much in the antitrust context, because um, that, that would be harder to evaluate. But um, looking at um, privacy law, for example, um, even pre-GDPR, if you go back to, like, the European Privacy Directive of 2002, there are studies, um, and I um, forget who was the author of this study, but essentially that tracks the um, draining of venture capital out of Europe um, following um, the development of certain European privacy laws. And you know, if it really affects the way they do business, um, especially innovative companies and don't allow them to grow whatsoever, um, then you know, venture capital moves to a more favorable environment. All right, but I mean, couldn't we just as well frame it as the Europeans have made it harder to exploit consumer privacy and data. So they've gone to a more libertarian or lower regulatory regime in the United States where they can, where it's easier to abuse or exploit, depending on how you want to look at it, consumer privacy and data. I mean, you wouldn't argue, would you, that the existing regime with respect to regulation of the big tech companies is satisfactory in the United States, would you? No, I mean, there, there are a lot of ways in which it needs updating. I would say the key difference, though, is um, just fundamentally in Europe, for example, they look at privacy as a human right. Um, and yeah, it's, it's almost a fetish. Protection of data. Yeah, and that's not the same thing as privacy. Um, protection of data, they mean... Um, you know, each and every you know kind of data point online and they view corporate power um overall a bit differently than, than we do like in germany for example antitrust laws are kind of shaped to protect the state actually against companies so oh, so that's an important point in other words it was it, it's a I, I posited probably a false or an, an implied false dichotomy which was that corporations versus consumers well no there, there's at least one other major player which is the state now, however, what we have in the United States is convergence of corporations and the state in a way that, to a large extent, was probably already the case in Europe, but is certainly explicitly the case right now. I want to talk about that, but first yeah. I want to actually, I, I got a little bit off track because I wanted to get the background down, and I thank you for, for, for tweaking it. What is the concern, given where we've, where we've come and where we've been in the last 20, 25 years on antitrust, to, to a large extent, because of the Chicago school's influence, what is the modern conservative take from your point of view on regulation and antitrust? How, how is it, is, has it changed or have we just misapplied it? Um, I, I think to some extent, um, I mean, I think you're kind of separating those two things into, you know, this sort of like market fundamentalism or even like tech, you know, exceptionalism, like any law that like helps promote, you know, technology is good. And I, I don't personally prescribe to that um, line of thinking, but I 
also think, um, you know, you just talked about corporate power versus, you know, this power of the state. Um, and I, I do think in a certain way that there are those um, definitions of, you know, which one is more important, um, which one's a bigger threat, that's evolving. But that is true because, I mean, the mo most dangerous thing is a combination of the two. You know, if you have the government able to coerce um, corporations and a lot of the um, bills, like, for example, in Congress right now that are being, you know, bridged to like, you know, raid and big tech or whatever that are Democrat bills, um, they would actually allow for a lot more of that. Um, and, you know, if you have um, you know, a regulator and threatening to investigate a company, it would be 15% of their revenue for this violation. You can get them to consent to pretty much anything. Um, and that's kind of how some of this would work. Okay. It's hard to say what the modern conservative definition is, though, because there are people out there who, um, you know, redefine conservatism and say conservatism is, you know, what I say it is. Um, who, um, of course, of course. And it's just, you know, not the definition of anything conservative. Um, so that's, you know, that's um, rebranding the term. The left is very good at that, by the way, just, you know, taking these terminologies and saying it's, you know, it means this. Um, but I feel like that's what um, certain people are doing right now with um, conservatism in general. I, well, that that's also moving the opposite direction. You, well, you're right. I think that there, ha I think there has been a battle for the soul and mind of, of conservatism. There've been many battles, of course, but I think the, 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 the Trump era has really brought it home and it has it resulted obviously in a tremendous shakeout. And to a large extent, people who for years described themselves as conservatives are now seen, I think, as not conservatives at all. Um, let's take quite a bit, though. <laughs> let's take a look, because I think that this, you know, tell me. I mean, this is your this is your project. The Alliance mm -hmm. on Antitrust was established to address the increasing calls to move away from the consumer welfare standard and to mm -hmm. use antitrust as a political tool. So, so that is already um you, when you say address increasing calls to move away from the consumer welfare standard i assume you would argue that uh, no round the the consumer welfare standard is actually the appropriate standard but the we're not necessarily well, let's, let's let's look at the second sentence. We believe so, so to talk about those calls for for a second. Though, I mean, people like Elizabeth Warren, for example, Bernie Sanders, they're the ones saying explicitly saying, "Let's move away from this," um, because, like I said, um, via you know the 1960s the, and the the text of the Sherman Act before the Consumer Welfare Standard, you can weaponize it for anything. That now to kind of you know an analogy, other areas of law, um, particularly like civil litigation or like, let's say like environmental um, suits, for example, um, they're all over the place. Um, I mean, it's they've really managed to weapon things, weaponize um, certain areas of law for you know different purposes, whether that be the environment or um, you know any other thing that can just you know micromanage different areas of the economy. And it's very easy to do that with this area of law. So that's what I mean by weaponize. Sorry to get you a bit off track there. No, no. Well, no, I think that's exactly right. But I mean, I think I, so. There is an argument that I'm sure that you're familiar with, which goes along the lines of we conservative we conservatives are losing the culture war we're mm -hmm. losing the political war or at least some very very important battles in the in the political war he, antitrust could solve many of the problems resulting from the domination of let's say platforms such as Facebook 
and Google. Um, and it, it's not, you know, it, we ought to weaponize it in order to move the, the needle back in the direction politically in the, that, that benefits conservatives and benefits what we think are the fundamental values that conservatives share and that most Americans actually share. I really set up a big softball for you. What's your response to that? Um, sure. So I, I, first, I, I would make a practical argument against that and that it's just, you know, kind of foolish to think that we would win that fight. Um, the other side has decades of experience in weaponizing the bureaucracy and litigation, um, and that would certainly swing in the other direction. Um, however, when it comes to, you know, some of the broader issues you're talking about, you're right, those are issues, but um, antitrust law wasn't designed to address speech. Um, and, and there are a lot of other areas of law that could be um, modified, could be better enforced. Uh, and there are speech laws, there's Section 230, there's um, intellectual property rights enforcement. That's a big one that um, you don't see those people talking about. And for those of us with any expertise on the subject, that's kind of notably absent too. I mean, there's an entire area of existing law that's not really being that strongly enforced um, against companies that um, just never really um, is mentioned in these conversations. But there are a lot of other solutions. And I feel like they've viewed antitrust as being kind of a vague but easy tool. I mean, statutes are hard to amend. I mean, it used to be, you know, we need to use Section 230, and then no one came up with a proposal that had any um, had any teeth, really. Um, and then, you know, it, it's moved from debate to debate to debate. And it's just it's like, like, from my perspective, I've seen it kind of coming this way for a while. Um, I'm thinking, when are they going to just say, oh, antitrust? Um, but in that that happens and that's happened on both sides like several times throughout history um there's been kind of this populist antitrust movement um kind of going in in both directions you know had ralph nader for example um was champion of it at one point in history i'm sorry the, 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 i said ralph nader was a, a champion of um political antitrust at one point in history the problem is though um, when you know you have these people on both sides right now saying we we want to weaponize antitrust um, for different reasons and like they all have different problems that they want to solve. Um, like if you ask them you know to identify the problem, they're all going to give you a different answer, and that's really problematic because it can't be a jack of all trades. It you know is oh, not right. going to solve those problems, and some of the problems are um, actually at indirect tension with each other. So the consumer welfare standard would how is the consumer welfare standard um affected by the existence of let's say one let's stipulate for me that google that notwithstanding that that, that numerous judges have found to the contrary those of us who know the internet those of us who use the internet know there's one search engine it's google there are, are of course there are other search engines but it, the Google has fantastic power and it manipulates search results for anti-competitive reasons. Now this is, and those anti-competitive, not only ideologically, but perspectively, any kind of, in other words, they are, the search results are not truly organic. So here's an antitrust here's a perspective antitrust problem, right? You've got market domination, you've got uh, extraordinary um, uh, obstacles to market entry, you've got network, extraordinary network effects, which the courts haven't really caught up to yet, but which in technology mm -hmm. are 
the name of the game. It's, it's essentially the, the modern day equivalent of vertical integration. Um, what, why shouldn't we be looking at Google as a monopolist, um, at least in, just, just, in, just in search? Or should we? Well, in search, for example, I mean, it's, first of all, I would start by saying that size alone isn't the problem. Um, and that's always been the case. Um, and that's does lead us down a bad road. So it's, you know, moving to like, you know, what actions they've taken and I use the word like if search search results aren't truly organic. I don't know what that would look like. Um, I was just thinking, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want them to be entirely random, um, but it depends on you know what they were doing to restrict competition. Um, and there are a lot of lawsuits across the country right now looking into that. Um, and they're still kind of mid-discovery. I don't know what will become of those. Um, it really depends. And I wouldn't agree necessarily with the, the vertical integration um, analogy either. I mean, vertical integrations often been used for some very practical reasons, such as in manufacturing or such as in um, the Federal Trade Commission actually has a case right now against a, um, a cancer screening um, blood testing company right now. Um, and essentially what they do, and this is a common model like within um, the pharmaceutical industry is there's the larger company and the name of that company is Illumina. Um, and they um, run all the machinery and everything that does the testing um, they have and they'll like spin off a, a kind of research arm so they're developing this project it doesn't make any sense to have you know various teams of researchers in-house developing their own project so whenever it becomes viable they re they maintain 20 or 25 percent or whatever the threshold is um, of that small company if the buy if the product is seems viable then they reacquire it um, because that makes a lot more sense from um, just a business perspective um, so they they stopped that and that product actually hasn't been on the market yet so you can't really say this um, hinders competition because there's no competition out there yet um, because the product doesn't exist there's a potential competitor maybe in China um, that's the one potential competitor but that's um, I think a example of misguided antitrust enforcement where vertical integration is a good thing okay so given that vertical integration it is not the existence of vertical integration doesn't turn a, you know, a perspective antitrust violation into a per se case. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just right. saying network effects are, are are a real, are a real obstacle to, you know, a real, uh, you know, obstacle to, to to competition. If if I if if I could prove to you the things that I listed, which is that, in fact, a better example that I'm that I'm aware of is 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 Facebook. Oh no! Or Amazon for that. Amazon, Amazon is doing things now, and has been for the last ten years, where it, you know, besides becoming to a large extent the exclusive place to buy things in a way, but in a way that Wells Fargo might have been 120, 150 years ago, and that the world didn't come to an end there. There were competitive options did develop. Um, but in, everyone has to get onto Amazon in order to compete. For, that, that's pretty, in other words, you, everyone who's selling is selling on Amazon. Mm -hmm. Amazon then offers opportunities to become, to, to, to do um, house brands. You can become an Amazon, you, you, you can help Amazon develop a brand in your, uh, you know, in, 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 in what it is that you sell, let's say spices. Um, and then so that you 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 produce a line of spices for Amazon, and you have a contract for two years. And after two years, 
they don't guarantee you anything. You get the benefit of the two years of sales because they've been buying, they've been selling and promoting their stuff. And first of all, they're, they're now they're now in a they're now selling a product that is competing with their own customers. In other words, all the other people who sell spices on on Amazon. And then after two years, they may or may not, at their discretion, renew this relationship, or they may just take all the know-how and and channel building that you've done for them for two years, take over the business and leave you with nothing except for the two years worth of profit. Is that, is that the sort of thing that consumer welfare, I mean, I guess, I guess the point would have to be, you'd have to demonstrate an effect on the fact that all that happened is really interesting, Ron, but are consumers being left with fewer buying options or is there a price effect? Those are the sort of things you'd have to look at, right? Well, I, I would disagree with, you know, the way, way in general you're, you're framing the consumer welfare standard and that, um, you know, antitrust law and antitrust violations um, are still what they are. It just, you know, guides them into, um, you know, not being about other things. That's just a much broader way of framing the you know, question of what is this area of law for? Um, and, you know, that could be, you know, it depends on what claim you're making, whether it's under antitrust law, um, you know, which would have to be tied to a specific action they took. It's hard to deal in the hypotheticals um, in antitrust law. In other law, words, is it, is it monopolization? It or well, is, what you were describing sounded more like a, a trade secret violation or a copyright problem. Yeah, um, but that, I mean, I, it, it is, no, it's not, because what would happen is you, you would, I, I think it'll get you, I think, I think my hypothetical will get us off track. But I think there is this, there, there is a, and I, there is something that anyone who's ever shopped on, on Amazon realizes now, which is Amazon does compete with its own customers. So you've got products A, B, C, and D manufactured from, from, you know, cables from CBS A, B, C, and too. D. Walmart does, all store brands do. All store brands do. Um, but, and, and that, in other words, that in and of itself is, isn't necessarily of interest. Um, it's really hard to like, yeah, pin down, yeah, hypotheticals on this. With so, is know, there anything? So, 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 is there any anything in in you know when I when I talk about Amazon and Google and Facebook and Twitter, is there anything those companies are doing that you think are prop are pro, are proper focus for antitrust enforcement? Sure. I mean, there could be, there certainly could be. Um, and I, I don't want to make predictions too, because a lot of these involve, you know, specific lawsuits that um, are going on right now regarding like the advertising industry, um, for example, and those are the discovery process and, you know, things are still coming out there. And um, I haven't seen, you know, all the documents um, <laughs> of them going through. No, I'm not asking you to suppose. Yeah. 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 But, but I mean, but, there could be, and it's certainly worthy of investigation, um, but, you know, make saying something, you know, deemed worthy of an antitrust investigation saying that, you know, there was an antitrust harm. Um, there, there's a lot to get from A to B there in terms of just, you know, internal investigations and document production. Okay, but I mean- There could be, I mean, maybe, I, yeah. There could there could be, but I mean, is like, what's an example of, of the, so, I mean, I think it's very telling that you said there is no, um, antitrust isn't meant to deal with the problem of speech. In other words, with the problem mm -hmm. of, cor of corporate censorship. Right. Uh, I mean, as you pointed out, there's nothing, there's, 
think this is getting pretty off track and hypothetical so i mean it's just really yeah okay to, yeah go there um just because well it's just not how antitrust specifically works without having um you know that specific action dependent to which is them you know taking certain internal yeah it doesn't um never really plays out well it never plays out well in terms of yeah computing on your end and my end in terms of you know what would the you know what exactly is the action that led to the claim um like and like all of the i mean in every you know of these scenarios there could be an antitrust violation hypothetically i mean not in necessarily that specific one i mean you'd have to elaborate on specifically you know what it did to get to that position like the nature of the contracts the then it just kind of yeah goes well, off the I, let, let me ask you then one last question on antitrust which is my, I've made the observation that when there's very when there's very little antitrust enforcement from the government, judges in civil cases are much less enthusiastic about antitrust claims on the private side. Would you agree? That's yeah. I, I would say there's some degree of truth to that. Um, and if we can talk maybe for a minute about what the left is trying to do and Democrats are doing regarding antitrust. Yes, I, I would like, I would very, I would very much like to hear about that, but sure. I'm um, sure. So, I mean, there, there's a debate in Congress, for example, uh, and there are a lot of, I mean, you've probably seen antitrust in the news a lot, um, both in the agencies and the cases in Congress. But like right now, I, one of the primary um, bills that are being considered by the Senate, and this started on the House side last summer, this came from David Cicilline's office, was kind of his pet project. Um, so you know, this is a, deal, a bill draft, drafted by the um, House, House impeachment manager. You can, I think it's fair to say that it's not meant to um, protect conservative speech, although some conservatives are making that claim, which to me um, is extremely bizarre um, and nothing in their te its text. It's kind of a pass it and see what it does sort of bill. Um, several of these are, but you, we have two groups of Democrats right now arguing, saying, well, the current draft of the bill does not, um, it will it would preclude um, basically the moderation of like hate speech and um, misinformation or disinformation or whatever you want to call it. And then another group saying, oh, well, no, you can do that perfectly well in the current text, which um, is also equally concerning um, if you know they think that it's um, amorphous enough and that um, there's that um, you know, both sides though want to use it for that purpose. Um, and um, that's not, for example, that's not a competition concern. Um, and then you have Republicans saying, well, we want to use it for, um, you know, things that make a lot more sense um, or, you know, the basic purpose of using it to protect competition. But when you have like five different reasons for using this and, and the bill's really um, badly drafted um, and gives the FTC and the DOJ a lot of joint power to course companies, for example, um, based on certain um, enforcements. And also there, there are things in some of these bills too. Um, and I'm sorry if I'm getting off track here. This is a broader um shifting the burden of proof away from the um, defendant into the government. Um, and more broadly, I mean, I think that's something that we should just outright reject, regardless of who's on the other side of this. And if you look on the flip side, too, on you know, what are Democrats saying when it comes to antitrust and judges, by the way, um, you, you see there's a kind of a direct overlap in those who are on the kind of neo-Grandesian left who um, you know, want to use antitrust for a lot of other purposes and want you know, an expanded regulatory stage. You also see them uh, calling for some very, very liberal judges. Um, and it was, you know, they were very happy when Breyer retired, um, said, you know, anyone but Breyer would be great, but they have to rule against corporations every time. 
Um, and as much as, you know, you don't like corporations to stop, we're all of a judge to um, decide based on the type of the party that they're ruling against. Um, and I, I think that's a big problem. That's very revealing that you see always that direct overlap there too. Um, so in any of those like reflexive um, judicial activist judges obviously have not <laughs> served us very well in the right. So, I mean, I think, I think you make an important point, which is that it's, it's almost as if these democratic legislators are looking at antitrust as the agency we haven't yet adequately used as a tool to hammer all kinds of conduct the way we have the CDC. And yeah, and it, it wouldn't even be fair to call some of these bills antitrust bills, really, in the, the traditional sense. I mean, it's really just broad regulations, and it gives agencies a lot of um, a lot of authority um, and a lot of discretion to to um, decide on how to enforce this or whether to enforce it in the future. And that's um, itself. Um, I mean, we, we don't want the um, Merrick Garland DOJ and the Lena Khan FTC teaming up to um, decide what um, applies to our companies and what does not. I, 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 and I, I think you're, to the extent that we're talking about any kind of expansion of statutory authority mm -hmm. to regulate, right. that just can't go well now. I mean, govern, exactly. government, government, I don't think anyone can seriously um, that, you know, question the fact that the administrative state is absolutely compromised. And if there's any single agency that has lost moral authority, it's the Department of Justice. And the, the, the and the you know, if if only because it's doing the same thing everyone else is doing, but it's doing so with its unusually, um, you know, uh, acute coercive power, uh, coercive power that this administration has already tried to give to OSHA, which is the Supreme, it needed the Supreme mm -hmm. Court to tell it it couldn't do, which really anyone who, all you have to do is read the statute to know that. I mean, they, they will do whatever they, I mean, you know, I, so I think you'll find this interesting because I mean, I, I wrote an article suggesting that under the Federal Trade Act, anti-competitive conduct by online uh, platforms, by social media platforms, should, if, if, if not anti-competitive, de deceptive conduct. In, in other words, a consumer, cons you know, a consumer deception sh sh is already something that the FTC could, could address. It, it doesn't need, you know, because as you say, the, the, the antitrust statutes that were passed during the progressive era, which is, you know, we're talking 100 years ago, are written very, very broadly. And it is a, interesting to me that these, um, these bureaucracies have not already been weaponized to the extent that you would think that they might have been. Um, and given, for example, how resistant they were to the, to the Trump administration, they haven't really come out swinging on behalf of the Biden administration either. Is this actually the case of the, the sort of administrative state stability that some people argue is actually a good thing? 
Well, it depends on which agency you're talking about right now. I was saying, like I said, there are some that have not had um, a majority um, on you know, commission. You have, um, you know, it took, it, this administration too has moved really slow when it comes to executive appointments. Um, so things are about to get really bad, probably the CFPB, for example. Um, and I think the CFPB is an example of something that was um, weaponized to a very full extent under Ex the Obama administration. Yeah, so it's certainly, yeah, it was, Paired explain, back a bit. Explain, um, explain what explain what you're talking about. Which agency this is? Um, the yeah. the CFPB, which is um created during the uh, during the Obama administration, has a you know massive amount of of, of authority. Um, and, and it has a massive amount of penalty or had a massive amount of penalty authority. Um, there, there have been some um some cases since then um that have kind of like moved into the direction, but um it's basically untouchable too by the president. I mean, you do have a broader issue too here though of um presidential removal power um, at, at both agencies, actually, that's be, you see being addressed um, to the, through the courts. Um, that's going to be pretty interesting coming up. Um, I don't want to get off on a tangent on that, but there, there are some interesting cases regarding that. You have um, an agency that's pretty much completely unaccountable, um, and it has a really, really broad regulatory mandate. Under the Trump administration, they didn't do as much. Um, and there's also a lot of overlapping you know, authority between other agencies. Um, I mean, it's usually, it's never, um, usually necessary to create another agency and you certainly can't make it go away very easily once you do. Um, and the CFPB is an, an example of that. And then you see in the uh, um, Biden administration, we, there's now uh, recently a head of the CFPB um, that was only, not, he was only nominated recently that he was um, at the FTC. Actually, he's continuing to vote um, at the FTC while in charge of the CFPB by just dumping a lot of votes on his last day there that came out over the course of like two months, um, which, is certainly questionable and probably challengeable. Um, you know, you had, um, I like to make the analogy, Judge Reinhardt um, on the Ninth Circuit um, passed away and the, the opinion came out, I'm not sure if you remember, after he, after he died, the Supreme Court, you know, remanded the case and said, you know, no, you're not appointed for eternity. Um, and we have here someone who wouldn't leave the agencies either. So, um, I, I'm not sure about exactly the legality of that. We see a lot of abuse of process. You, I, I think it's hard to compare what's going on at other agencies to like DOJ, for example. Um, I, I think you make a good point there. And um, looking at um, Merrick Garland and the you know investigation of like parents, for example, and those um, sorts of issues, and those um, are really, I think, a lot more concerning overall in terms of um, you know using the the power of the state to, to do something. But also, um, the DOJ has had ample opportunity to do so over the past year and a half. Or however long it's been, yeah, a year and a half. And I think to a large extent, you, you know, your, your your argument about we don't the last thing we need, regard almost regardless of who we is, unless you mean the very thin crust of people who control the Democratic Party uh, and its finances. The last thing we need is to give is to officially give any more power to any government agency. Um, because it has so readily demonstrated its amenability to to abuse. I mean, I, I guess that, that would be something that all the members of the Alliance and Antitrust probably would believe in common. Do you do any legislative handicapping? Do you think this bill is going to make it? The, the Klobuchar mm -hmm. bill? I don't think there's nearly enough support now. Um, that's, that's a relief. <laughs> yeah, um, I think at, at one point it was being said to the media. Also, Hillary Clinton endorsed it, so <laughs> if it's, it's if it's not dead already, it's going to die now. <laughs> wow, that's a that's a new kind of Clinton aside that we hadn't even considered. Right. You know, Ashley, I, I I'm sorry that I that I um 
spent so much time talking, uh, trying to beat you up on, on, on antitrust, but I think I've come away with a much better understanding of your point of view. I mean, I, I do think there are serious anti-competitive concerns with regard to the big tech companies. And your point there is that, well, you know, you, you, need, you need to identify the specifics. You need to identify how those specifics line up with the applicable law on anti-competitive conduct. And then, you, and then apply the consumer, you know, Ron, if, if what you say is a problem, the way you say it's a problem, you need to demonstrate, you should, you should have not, you should not have difficulty demonstrating a negative effect on consumer welfare. Right. I, I would add to that, though. Um, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that no changes are needed whatsoever to the area. I mean, there there are changes that can make enforcement easier. Uh, like for example, DOJ and FTC have overlapping enforcement authority in a way that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And that's been uh, true for for what, 50 years at least, right? Right, I, I, there have been several proposals. Um, Mike Lee's had a few to, to kind of help um, consolidate that. Um, his would consolidate under one agency. I mean, I think um, streamlining that authority, you don't have to necessarily um, consolidate it under one agency or the other, but there are a lot of ways in which you can make improvements there and make enforcement a lot easier. There are a lot of things that you can do. These aren't the things that capture much media attention either, though, when it comes to antitrust, because they're mostly procedural. But I do think there are ways to streamline the process and make enforcement easier. Thank you very much, Ashley, for all the time you spent with me on uh, discussing these issues. Uh, you, you seem to really have your hands full. You're you're in the mix, uh, really, with all the issues that are, that you know that are, that are affecting people. And um, I hope we have a chance to talk again soon. Sure, great. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.